Hello and welcome to the British Sitcom History Podcast. My name is Alan, with me as always is Gareth. Nick Nick. No, don't do it. No, you can't. You can't do it. Um, we're doing... Oh dear. We're, today we are looking at Up the Elephant and Round the Castle, a, vehicle, a 1980s vehicle for a popular comedian Jim Davidson. Jim Davidson. Uh, popular then. So this should this should go really well and without any controversy. <laughs> yeah, well, obviously, our, our slogan here at British Sitcom History Podcast is, it was a different time. Yeah. <laughs> and and uh, we'll probably be dealing with that today, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. But uh, in Up the Elephant and Round the Castle, we, th- we definitely avoid uh, racial issues by not having anyone in it who isn't white. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's that's, that's, well, that's their, the East End for you. That's the technique uh, for dealing with that. But yeah, let's well, let's not get into that yet. Let's give ourselves a bit of a, a bit of a intro before we get started. Well, can we? We often start with because uh, I'm older than you. Mm-hmm. My memories of '80s sitcoms. So obviously, yeah. this was what, what year? What year? What, tell me what year this was. It started very late, 1983, and ran for three series. Is that right? Yep, up till yeah. end of. So you were you were born in 1984, so that, mm. that rules you out. But I do remember this on this being on. And the thing, bluntly, the thing that I remember about it was. What a weird name. I had no idea that Elephant and Castle was a place in London until this program came out. Because it is objectively a weird name. If you live in South London, then you're used to it. But if you don't, it is a weird name for a place. <laughs> Elephant and Castle, yeah. Just up the road from me, actually. I'm pretty yeah. local to there now. It's, it's, uh, yeah, so, so the, the, name, the name of the sitcom, Up the Elephant and Round the Castle. Now, I presume, is that, is that something that local people say when they're going to Elephant Castle? I think you would say, oh, I live up the elephant. Like you, yeah, you'd okay. say that. I've never heard anyone say around the castle. But that, the, the title itself is the first first example of uh, egregious Cockney rhyming slang, shall we say? Maybe not. Maybe it's not rhyming slang, but Cockney patois that we yeah, see yeah. peppered throughout this sitcom. Yeah. And I am every time I hear something like um, like there's several occasions on which you refers to children as the old saucepan lids, and I think <laughs> do people. Talk like that? Did people ever talk like that? Certainly you know in the 1980s, they surely You didn't. know, weirdly enough, I heard someone say that yesterday in the oh, wild. Come, in come on! Life. Honestly, uh, there's a there's a guy uh, where I a place where I volunteer, and there's a guy who comes along, and he's a very like, oh, I spoke West Ham, I'm a Cockney geezer, kind of fella. And yesterday it was, you know, we we had a lot of adults there, not many kids, and he was like, hey, where's the saucepan lids, eh? Kids, yeah. And like he always has to explain it every time he says it. But, um. <laughs> well, in fairness, they don't do the that explanation thing in Up the Elephant Around the Castle. But there is a lot. I sort of started writing them down. I started writing down all the rhyming slangs. A lot of them peppered throughout. They do, but if, when they do explain them, it's because there's a character, a, a sort of posh character, who's completely befuddled by their uh, Cockney, yes. uh, Cockney ways. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So Jim Davidson. Then let's start with him. He is the oh, he is the star. Train, He's the star of this series, and it's it, it feels it seems as though it's built around him. It's sort of like right, what we're going to do with Jim Davidson? Let's write a show for yeah, him. Yeah, definitely. Because he was he's, he wasn't an actor. He's not an actor. He was a stand-up mm. comedian. And the, as the without getting into the episode, we're going to cover just yet. Certainly, the first couple of series that each show opens with Jim and the characters called Jim coming out of his front door and basically talking to camera. And it's it's a it's it's not quite stand-up set, but it's basically a stand-up set. 
Mm. And it feels like, okay, it's a bit like the original, the early episodes of Seinfeld, where he was like, okay, this is a stand-up comedian. Let's use what we, let's use what we know he can do before we get yeah. into the awkward fact that he can't act. Yeah, and the, 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 this, that's interesting because, uh, first of all, it's, it's, it's not really stand-up. It's not him doing a, like a David Letterman monologue. No. It's, it's him just introing the show and talking to the audience directly, which is not something that happens in the show. You know, he doesn't break the fourth wall. No. It's, it's uh, just an odd It's a setup story. narrative, isn't it? It's a sort of intro to where we're about, yeah. to, what we're about to see. But, you know, there are jokes. It's, it, is, it, has the, it has the cadence of stand-up comedy. It doesn't have the laughs of stand-up comedy, but that's a different matter. Yeah, exactly. Well, the interesting thing is that this show was largely um, put together by Spike Mullins, mm. uh, the writer Spike Mullins, who is a, a sketch and gag writer, not a sitcom writer, mm. but is best known because he wrote the bulk of those Ronnie Corbett sat-in-the-chair monologues. Of course, yeah, yeah. So he's a guy who likes to write monologues. You've got an actor who is uh, used to standing up and talking in front of people rather than acting. So it so seems like let's put these together, right? Yeah. Are, are, we, are we working towards here, Jim Davidson is no Ronnie Corbett? Because I'm, <laughs> I'm very comfortable with that. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, the, I think the, the problem is, I honestly, there's, there's, there was a few of them where I was like, imagine Ronnie Corbett telling this mm. and it would work. And it'd be yeah. getting laughs. Interesting. Davidson doesn't have the timing for it. It f- uh, uh, to give him some credit, it feels under rehearsed. It feels like yeah. Whether whoever's fault that is, it feels like he's been over it a couple of times. And like, okay, well, I'll tell you it. something. I noticed, Alan, that in the, it's a sort of two camera setup. He's talking to one camera, and then he'll turn and look at another camera. And there were several times across yeah. several different episodes where he missed the cue, and he sort of he was late mm. turning to the camera switch. I don't know much about the technicalities of it, but surely you can do another take of that. Good. Do you know what? Everyone is looking for geezers with experience and education. I mean, look at this. Poverty is not the root cause of crime waves. What a dull thing to say, eh? Be fair. I mean, if we was all lowly, we wouldn't need to do naughties, would we? I mean, how often do you look in a paper and see wealthy industrialists bows gas meter or six millionaires set about penster in the high street? <laughs> nah, it's being skint what makes innocent people get up to naughties, isn't it? Even little kids, little saucepan lids are getting at it. Yeah, I noticed that as well. Very noticeable, that sort of thing. Because it's not something you see. Like, the crew are well-drilled. The crew don't make those mistakes. No, there's the sort of thing that you see on, like, a live news broadcast. Not in a sitcom. Yeah, very sloppy, some of this stuff. It does feel a little bit cheap, doesn't it? The whole thing. Yeah, the set's the set's quite cheap. So that that opening scene where we're sort of in the street outside, and we sometimes use that set during the episode as well. And then the other set, basically, there's the pub, and then it's in his house. He's got like a one room bed sit type thing. It's supposed to look a mess and crap, so like that sure. helps. But that's not what I mean. I, I mean it looks, you know, fake. <laughs> That street set is huge because they open with a, a giant sort of panning shot mm. like down the street. That's a big set that they've put together there. Yeah. And it it's underused for what it for what they've done. It's got back. It's got these huge backdrops as well. Yeah, there's a big there's a bad matte painting of Saint Paul's in the background. Yeah, and it's yeah, it's just not good enough, is it? <laughs> Basically, that's uh, why why go to that effort? I, we just watched Porridge before this, didn't we? And you know, can you compare it to the the way that Porridge, the sets of Porridge were put together and how realistic that looked? You know, I don't know if you remember. I was surprised it wasn't a real prison when we were discussing it. Mm. Whereas this looks like a television studio. And you'll notice no, it's all studio stuff. There's no location shooting, mm-hmm. which again is, you might not need it for what you're doing, but I think that's a budgetary concern as well. 
one other thing about that opening set, opening sequence, is it shows you it sort of pans down to his house, and there's a bottle of milk on the step, like what you used to have, and mm-hmm. there's this, like a um, sort of shopping bike outside his house because you used to be able to leave your bike outside. <laughs> Nobody would nick it. You could leave your doors open, and I, I'm, I'm doing all of this in my head, basically being completely, I, I'm, I, you know, I'm being completely unfair to Jim Davidson. <laughs> I'm sort of imagining him saying, oh, it's not the same anymore, is it? Now you've got all the forums. <laughs> and I'm like, why am I doing this? This is not fair. Like, why am I assigning these views to Jim Davidson? Yeah. Well, perhaps he's done something over the years. Well, shall we talk about that? Let's, let's talk about the, before we get back into the, the, the show itself, I think we, we need to talk about the, um, well, the elephant, so to speak, in the room. <laughs> the elephant in the castle. In the castle. Um, <laughs> it is an objectively stupid name for a town, Elephant and Castle. There is no yeah. way around it. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, sorry. Let's talk about Jim Davidson. Yes. Okay. So what's let's let's go back in time first. So what 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 did he do before this? Well, you know, he's still a fairly young man here. He was um he was just a working class kid. Like he's he's not from Elephant and Castle, but you know, he's a London Cockney cheeky chappy, and yeah. he was just doing odd jobs in a sort of cheeky Cockney way. Mm getting by and uh, doing gigs as a comic. He just wanted to be a, a comic, really. And yeah. he got his big break through New Faces. Yes. And so New Faces was like Britain's Got Talent, right, of the 70s? Yeah. <laughs> well, New Faces, it was it ran originally from 1973 to 78, so it was before my time. But then it was revived in the 80s, and I remember that revival. I remember that being a thing. And yeah, it was certainly... Well, it was it was long before Britain's Got Talent, but it was back in the days when oh, I'm going to sound like an old man here. When it was back in the days when talent shows were about the talent and not about the backstory. <laughs> you know, you didn't get a VT of them and their granny and on her deathbed and all that stuff. You just like, can he sing? Are his jokes funny? Here's the clapometer. I, I think. Do you know what? I think I've mixed the the other the other big talent show in the seventies was uh, Opportunity Knocks. And I think the yeah. clapometer was Opportunity Knocks, new, not New Faces. But yeah, basically they were the same thing. <laughs> yeah, so I think these old talent shows were more like you used to have variety shows on the telly, you know, live at London Palladium and Saturday Night Special and all that kind of thing, where you'd just have like a, a, a bill of acts. There'd be a comedian, there'd be a singer, there might be a I don't know a juggler or you know those sorts of variety acts. That that was that was a lot more popular back then on, on television. Yeah, and so the talent shows like New Faces followed a similar format. They were basically trying to find people who would feed into that circuit. So. Quite a few people came through uh, that, that sort of system that we still... Yeah. yeah, what would happen is there'd be a sort of competition every week with several acts and there would be a winner. And then there was a sort of grand final at the end. So anyway, Jim Davidson didn't win the series, but he won, you know, he was a winner that week, so to speak. But also, you know, I, I was I made a list of sort of famous names that came through. Oh, yeah. Like the first, well, the, not the first winner, but the runner-up in the first series was Shawadi Wadi. Which is, oh, yeah. which is a name from the past. But but that year also, Les Dennis was... Uh, Les Dennis of Extras fame. That was yes. a sitcom connection. <laughs> Les Dennis is a really good example of that kind of variety show comedian. Pretty harmless, but not controversial. No, no, no difficulty putting him on on a Saturday night. Few gags, some impressions, end with a song. Exactly right, yes. And that was the kind of thing that they were, they were doing. Victoria Wood was on New Faces, very famously. So, uh, yeah, we have a Dinner Ladies connection there. Lenny Henry came through New Faces. Doing the, uh, ooh, Betty. <laughs> He's doing the classics. <laughs> There's a couple of other couple of other sitcom connections. Marty Kane was, she was primarily a, a comedian, but she, she was in a couple of sitcoms. And then other names that are more 
comedians, people like Michael Barrymore, Roy Walker was on New Faces, but perhaps most controversial, most relevant, uh, someone who appeared on New Faces was Chubby Brown, Roy Chubby Brown in 1977. Really? Uh, which uh, apparently is the last time he was on television. I'm not, I'm not sure <laughs> that's true because I think he was in the League of Gentlemen, wasn't he? But, but, but you know, that, that's, that's, apparently that's, that's, the, that's the legend. He was on television and then he's, his act was so bad that they wouldn't, they wouldn't put him on again. <laughs> Did he have his um, work five minutes clean, or did he, did he go blue? Well, I mean, it was it was Saturday night TV, so it must have been. He must have had some clean material. <laughs> but I think that's the that's the perhaps the relevant comparison for us here with Jim Davidson, because Jim Davidson obviously has this controversial uh, reputation as being a little bit old fashioned in his attitudes. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, it was a different time, but you know, the criticism of Jim Davidson is that he hasn't really changed with the times. Yeah, I mean, you'd think he's old-fashioned now, but was he 40 years ago? That, this is my point. Not only was he enormously popular in 1983 when this sitcom came out, but he continued to be enormously popular, presenting huge prime... T- you know, Big Break was a massive show. He presented The Generation Game, which was a real tentpole of the BBC primetime schedules. He was, he was huge. No, he, he was very popular and not controversial in the 1980s. Not at all. Yeah, yeah. It was a different time. But yeah, he, he this sitcom, followed by Home James, which in theory is a sequel, but is essentially yeah. a different sitcom. Mm. That's pretty much the only acting he's done. Yeah. He's done his, his own sort of pantomimes, and obviously that's acting. Well, I would co- argue that kind. he's not really acting. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whether, whether or not you like his performance in this, it's him. You know, it's him. Perhaps it's his persona, his comedic persona, but it's him. It's not. It's not a yeah. They've written a character that he doesn't. I mean, the character's called Jim London. I mean, how basic can we get? (laughs) Yeah, he's a he's a London lad, and he's called Jim. But that was that was kind of how it was done in those days, wasn't it? If you wanted to put a a comedian, I mean, look at Miranda. You know, like Mm -hmm. it's not that that the character she's playing is the same as the persona she has on stage, and yes, it's an amped up version of. what appears to be her if you see her interviewed and everything. Yeah. So that's how you do it, you know, that's fair enough. And he was he was established by this point. You know, he came through in the mid seventies. He had his own show called the Jim Davidson show in the late oh well, mm-hmm. early eighties. And so this is what came after. It's not exactly well remembered now. No. I mentioned this to a few people, you know, this is what we're doing next and uh, anyone younger than me had not heard of it. And I don't think it did any major business at the time. You know, it's not like it was big in its day. Obviously big enough to get a few series out of it, but that was it. If we want to talk about Jim Davidson a bit, like where he is now, Mm. he went on from this, did Home James, and then not long after that, basically started hosting Big Break, and that that was his bread and butter for 10 years. And I remember Big Break, you know, that's my era of TV, the 90s. And yeah, it was him and John Virgo, great bit of patter, some some snooker-based shenanigans. Oh, everybody loves snooker best shenanigans. It was a time when snooker was actually popular for this brief period. As well. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love Big Break. I watch Big Break. I'm not saying it was rubbish. What I'm saying is it's mystifying when you look back now <laughs> that we used to watch that rubbish. A snooker-based game show. <laughs> yeah. So, but then, yes, and then in the mid-90s, he took over as from, from Brucey. I mean, what a mantle to take that! Mm. Is from uh, to do the generation game. Like, it doesn't get bigger than the generation game in the nineties. Mm. That was Saturday prime night prime time. He was the Gary Lineker of his day. <laughs> He's getting the BBC's golden boy, and and not controversial. This is my point. You know, there mm. weren't people saying, "Oh, he shouldn't be doing this. He's racist." I'm not saying he was universally popular, but it wasn't controversial. And it's quite interesting that a lot of people, a lot of acts, perhaps more then than now, had that double life of. 
the clean-cut, well-spoken host on the BBC, and then you go and see them at the, at the club and they work in blue. Bob Monkhouse, you know, did all that. Perhaps that's a consequence of the all-pervasive nature of media now, in that if you went and did some blue material or some off-colour material in a club, someone's filmed it, someone's posted it on Twitter and you're cancelled, you know. Whereas you could kind of have that as two separate personas. Two, it was because, two yeah, because that, it wasn't like they were going to the club and doing something that was forbidden. That mm. was how it was in the club. The problem was the BBC weren't going to show that. So you can't do that. You have to be able to do mm. your clean material. Yeah, And so you have to have these two sides. And that's about balance that lots of people did, like you say, yeah. And then there was people who couldn't do it, which is why Bernard Manning never presented, um, you know, Bullseye. Yeah. <laughs> because he couldn't stop himself. Yeah. Uh, whereas Jim Davidson, obviously, and he seems for for all the I'm going to slag Jim Davidson off quite a lot. Uh, in this, yeah, in I feel this like we're being too nice to him at the moment, but but, but on, I think he does have a, a kind of a um, a likable nature to him. He's charming. Yeah, he's charming. He's a cheeky chappy, and he can do that like poking fun at a housewife um, from you know Somerset. Uh, because she's tried to make a clay pot and made a mess of it. Like you can, you can <laughs> yeah. make fun of her and have, and it's okay, and not just sound yeah. like you're being nasty. That's a great skill to have, and obviously, it's it, it earned him um, a nice little fortune throughout the nineties. But just uh, that, that all came to an end. And and why is this? Who who knows? But in two thousand two, the big break ended, and maybe that it had just two thousand two, right? Point. Okay, yeah, so that's yeah. twenty years ago. But that's probably a little later than I would have guessed, actually. Yeah, and maybe it had been on a downturn you know it's just yeah. it lived its life that's fine and then in the same year he stopped presenting the generation game which did carry on didn't it i think they uh they went they went on with well they the revived game. it several times generation games it's one of those things that keeps coming back like a, yeah like a zombie format but basically that meant jim davison in 2002 had the you know the carpet pulled from beneath him like whatever he was earning at the bbc it was gone was there some expose of something he'd said that led to all this no no I think the BBC are at the forefront of political correctness, let's say, because sure. they're 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 the one who are gonna they're the ones who are gonna have to answer to to the yep. to the public more often than anyone else. I, I don't know, maybe they're just going, look, you're you're out doing Cinderella, the pantomime, and it's just it's not good for the brand and we there's only so much of a disconnect you can make there. Yep. Like you say, in the seventies perhaps it's different to in two thousand two. Maybe there's nothing. Maybe it was just he's been forefront of the T V for for 10 years and people are sick of him and we need to move on to someone well, else. That does so, happen, doesn't it? Yeah, it's but, just but a it's fashion. certainly from what I... I don't follow Jim Davidson particularly, but whenever you do hear him, he is perhaps understandably defensive and a little angry about the way that he's perceived. And which I don't think helps, you know, it, it becomes a very confrontational situation, doesn't it? It becomes a very polarised debate. Yeah, but that, that's it. I mean, maybe you just fall out of fashion and... Uh... We've had enough of Jim Davidson. and But, I mean, it was bad for him because, you know, his major income was gone. And very quickly after that, he was declared bankrupt. He was... Oh, really? To... I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he's got like five ex-wives, six kids and oh. whatever it is. So it's like he's paying money out all over the place. He's. Yeah. Uh, it was the tax man that bankrupted him. You know, he, he couldn't oh. pay. He couldn't pay the tax, so... And I know he, he ran off to Dubai for a, for a good few years as well, um, just to get away from the tax man, I guess. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that, which is I owe anyone who 
voluntarily lives in Dubai as suspects yeah. as far as I'm Maybe concerned. they've just got great sporting facilities there. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, he's had his he's had his moments. He won Celebrity Big Brother in twenty fourteen, apparently. Oh yeah, I remember that, yeah. I mean I'm not particularly familiar with that, but you know, he's But that, what's interesting about it is that's a public vote, isn't it? So I think he would have uh, taken mm. some positive from that. And that's, you know, so that's eight years ago. He would have been about, what, 60, 61 then. So he, you know, that's perhaps, that was perhaps the late career revival that he could have turned into something else. Doesn't seem like he has. What does he do now? Like, how does he make a living now? He's got his own, uh, like, social media platform, like a, oh, like yeah. a YouTube knockoff, which I assume, I haven't looked into it in a great deal, but I assume it's like, well, YouTube won't let us say these things. So come over here and we can say them. Kind <laughs> oh of my God. Into it. I've seen a few clips of him just pontificating. He does a kind. Of, he just sits in front of a green screen and um, talks about things. And it's like if there's any, if there's been any, was there any chance ten years ago of him kind of going the right direction? He's very much now like, oh, you know what, you know what they're saying now. You, you can't, you can't have white swans anymore. You've got to have at least two black swans in every lake, otherwise the council <laughs> will come and shut you down. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is the problem, I think. You know, we see this a lot, like in the trans debate now, where you you can't really have any nuance, but, and and you can kind of understand someone like Jim Davidson, who has basically been told he's bad and you know lost his job. You can kind of understand them doubling down, can't you? And feeling mm. embittered and feeling marginalised and finding their community, finding the people who agree with them. I, I I understand that trajectory, and I think this is fairly normal for the people who are in that type of spotlight. I think Jim Davidson does understand the nuance. I think he does. I think he can look at his material and go, okay, I see the damage that has done, or I can see why I can't say that anymore. But I think the people who are commenting on it, and if you look at the YouTube comments on his videos and stuff, they don't know. They yes. don't know that nuance. And Jim Davidson has made either conscious or unconscious decision to court that audience yes. and make his money off those people. One thing, I, one point I did want to make is that I, I don't think I've ever seen, or if I have, I don't remember, just stand-up. Jim Davidson just doing a stand-up comedy. I think I probably did see it in the 1980s, like I say, he was a TV variety comedian. But I don't really remember it, I was only a kid. The reason I'm bringing that up is that the closest thing we get to it in Up the Elephant Around the Castle is those opening monologues. And as I said earlier, I don't really like them, I don't think they're very good. And you mentioned Bernard Manning earlier, the thing that people always say about Bernard Manning, it was it was a a technically gifted comedian, you know, and he could craft a joke and his timing was perfect and all these things. It was just that his material was not, not okay. Mm. The evidence of this sitcom is that Jim Davidson was not a good comedian. Now, I, I don't think that's fair. I think he must have been better than, this, uh, than these uh, opening monologues mm. suggest, otherwise he wouldn't have had the success he had. But it's certainly not a good showcase for him. Yeah, I agree. And I have watched some of his comedy. I specifically went and watched some for this, research for this. And the the thing I watched specifically was from about 93, I think. So really yeah. at his peak. And it's some pretty off-the-shelf kind of gags. Nothing too great. And a lot of talk about how he's really controversial and like, oh, people are going to walk out. Um, yo, you yeah. didn't think, oh, he, I thought he was nice on that big break. Uh, a lot of that kind of stuff. Is he doing a Gervais? So, <laughs> fun with Ricky Gervais now, isn't he? He seems to think that being controversial is more important than actually telling jokes. <laughs> well, they don't. They don't. I don't think they get on. But I think. But I think it's the same. I think it's the same problem. I think Ricky Gervais has got the same thing where he, he feels like he's been so criticised that he gets defensive, and then you know, mm. you just turn into this defensive, justifying your actions without sort of forgetting what you're there for. Yeah. You know, they say that about Lenny Bruce. By the time he died, you know, his, his act was unwatchable because he was just 
complaining about the police trying to shut him up. Yeah. The Graham Linehan effect, isn't is it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think there's a lot of that that goes on and it's it's very easy to fall into that trap as well. And I think more so yeah. now than ever with your old social media feedback loop and all that. Mm. I, I tell you what really works for Jim Davidson's act and what he is good at. And it mm. doesn't necessarily mean it's always politically correct. But what he's good at is doing characters. What stand-up comedians called act outs. Little gaggy bits like that, yeah. And obviously his most famous one is Chalky, which is a <laughs> stereotypical Jamaican, well, mm-hmm. West Indian, vaguely West Indian accent. But um, like he, he embodies the character really nicely. And, 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 and I think those are the funnier moments. Just, you know, you need to find a way to do that where you're not putting people down. I think is probably the only way to do it. He's quite a physical performer, isn't he? You know, he sort of you know, uses his mm-hmm. body and he moves and... When he's when he's doing those act outs, you know, you can see him embodying the characters. Yeah, and I think that's that's one of his strengths, and uh, you know, maybe see more of that. But then, so why then is he not that great an actor in Up the Elephant and Round the Castle? <laughs> well, indeed, yeah. Let's get into the actual show then, eh? Shall well, yeah, we? Yeah, let's. Well, so let's t- for the benefit of our listeners, the one the, there were three series. The episode that we're focusing on is series two, episode four. Come to the aid of the party, which yes. is. Um, I'm really now just reading that the the title of the episode. Come to the aid of the party. I genuinely don't know what that means. <laughs> like, is that a pun? Is that? Um, I'm not sure. <laughs> like, for example, I've got some other episode titles here. And they came onto Jim, the spy who left me, the Pied Piper of Hamlet. Okay, we got the bad puns, but they're puns. What is come to the aid of the party? If any of our <laughs> listeners know what the hell that's supposed to mean, then please do tell us. Let's start with the opening then, I guess. Well, what about the titles? Because we talked about the, the way that it's structured, but the, before mm-hmm. we see Jim coming out of his door and talking to us, what, what about the titles? You've got that panning shot of the set that comes down mm-hmm. to his front door. What about the music? What do you think of the music? Are you all right with the music? It feels very sitcom-y, standard 80s. Music? I don't think it jumps out at me or anything. I didn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> it's this sort of plinky plunky piano thing, but then it's got this weird vibrato thing going on. I don't know what the hell. Like I'm not a music guy. I don't know what the instrument was. I did note that in the credits, the theme music is credited to Keith Emerson. Who is he? As in Emerson Lake and Palmer. Shop. Well, that's Keith Emerson. Like, unless there's another Keith Emerson who does keyboard music for sitcom. I think this was in the eighties. He was like. Past his peak and just j- uh-huh. job doing churning stuff out for the BBC. Wow, he must have been, if you will forgive me, brassic lint. <laughs> uh, that means he has no money. He's skint. It's running slightly. <laughs> Let me just take that off my list. I'll get, I'll get to the others as we go. <laughs> so, so yeah, we we spin in. We get we get Jim's front door, and out he walks to talk to us. Now, one point. In every episode until this one, he's come out in his dressing gown. Jim Davidson is not not a physical specimen, is he? He's got very spindly <laughs> he's... little legs. Yeah. <laughs> However, in this episode, he's dressed, which is a blessing. Well, I, I notice, actually, what happens in this episode is we go straight from the monologue into the scene, as opposed yes. to, like, he would normally go, oh, oh, God, that, that, that reminds me, last Tuesday, this happened, and then he would kind well, of, sort of fade to... into the scene, yeah. This actually works straight into the scene where his neighbour comes out and the the story begins. They did phase out the monologue in series three. Mm-hmm. And they obviously realised that wasn't doing anything for anyone. So perhaps this they were already working. So, so a couple of things way. on this. He says he's dressed and up early for the post. Now, <laughs> I, 
I have questions. Okay. In 1984, when this went out, did the postman bring the post and then take it away if you weren't out of bed? <laughs> <laughs> All right, morning, Will. You probably wonder why I'm up and about this morning. I want to catch the postman, don't I? Important letter. Oh, look at this. OHMS. Only Hindus, Muslims and Sikhs. <laughs> well, it is not, not good for me, what is it? And then he does, right. he does an accent. Unclear whether it's a Hindu, Muslim or a Sikh accent. <laughs> it doesn't matter, actually, in the 80s. It didn't make any difference. But I wanted to ask, what is the OHMS? On Her Majesty's Service. It basically means a tax bill, I think. Right, yeah. So why is it for Hindus, Muslims and I don't, Sikhs? I don't know. I don't get it. It was just an opportunity to do an accent. Uh, it's not for some joke. reason why... No, it's know. not. I don't know. <laughs> okay, I don't know. <laughs> and then there's a, he opens another envelope. It's a TV license um, uh, demand. He's not going to pay that. Of course he's not. He's a benefit cheat. Uh, <laughs> I, I think I could write an entire essay on the, the art of opening letters in front of a live audience, um, the different methods we have to go through because... Okay, this, this, is, this is very on brand for our podcast. Talk to me about opening letters in front of an audience. <laughs> <laughs> because you'll see in sitcoms where they have to open a letter and then it's like, you know, you haven't got time to mess about and they just sort of r- rabidly rip it apart because they need to get to it. Oh, yeah, we need to get to this letter. Uh, we're, we're here on, on this show. They've gone with the the envelopes aren't sealed. Just open them and pull the letter I see. Out. Technique. This, this is great observation, sense. Alan. I didn't even notice that. <laughs> so the letter that he's anticipating, oh, this is the letter I'm waiting for. And I'm thinking, oh, this is the setup for the episode. It's not. It's a letter from the Playboy Club. Oh, yeah. Thank you for your letter offering uh, to house a retired bunny girl. Unfortunately, and then he screws it up. That's the joke. That's the joke. <laughs> like, that's why he's got up early. Yeah. <laughs> Worth a try, though, isn't it? <laughs> uh, yes, but one of the other letters he receives, and so we do set up the plot here, is yeah. a council tax bill, basically. Rates demand. Yeah, so his neighbour, who it turns out works for the council, comes along. And they, they start by talking about TV license fee, and then they start to talk about the, the rates. Arnie, his neighbour, is suggesting that it might be a good idea for him to contribute towards society. Clearly that doesn't work. <laughs> and so he suggests that Jim tries to get his house reassessed so he can go into a lower council tax band. So that's the setup for the episode. Just for the setup for the show, by the way, just for anyone who's not aware, the idea is that Jim, Jim Landon's aunt has died and left him this house. So he, has, he owns this house. Uh, in a sort of rundown area. And so that's why he can kind of just scrape by on the benefits because he's just, he's got a place to live and then he's just, mm. you know, so he's a bit of a cheeky company wide boy mate, trying to scrape together a living. So, so that's kind of the general gist of the show. But then, you know, apparently never realised that you have to pay council tax on a house. Can I, can I, can we just, just before we go on, Alan, can we stop calling it a house? It's a drum. <laughs> Aunt Mim popped off and left me a drum. A That's drum. Hang on, let me work this one out. A drum. I don't know. I don't know. I know rhyme drum's with house. house. I know that that is drum the thing. and drum, drum and bass. No drum and bass. Drum and... The, my plate. My place. Drum and bass. It could be. It could be. <laughs> there's nothing else. Drum and there's nothing else that goes with drum. Drum and mouse. <laughs> no, not a thing. <laughs> if any of our listeners are from South London and the 1930s, then please do let us know what the hell that means. The the councillor there, so his neighbour, Councillor Moggs, Arnold Moggs. Arnold Moggs. He sounds like a bit of a nerd. What yeah. a nerdy name Arnold Moggs is. Uh, this is Nicholas Day playing the characters, and very much falls under what I like to call Peter Denyer acting. Uh, yes. In, in reference to our Dear John episode, yes. Peter Denyer playing the most basic stereotype nerd character that you could possibly dream up, and, and we're definitely falling into the same category here. Yeah, he hasn't got tape on his glasses, but he's certainly got glasses. 
Yeah, and he's the fastidious, fastidious officious counsellor type. Uh, uh, I think you'll find you need a permit for that uh, kind of vibe. And he lives next door to uh, Jim mm. London, so obviously they, they're at conflict quite regularly. And he is a regular character. And he's actually a replacement for a character in the first series who lives next door to him who is a counsellor, played by a different actor. And it has a different okay. character name. Uh, but obviously that actor wasn't available later on, so they've replaced him. Nicholas Day, funnily enough, appeared in series one as a different character, oh. but very much a similar character. It's when he's, uh, Jim's going to sign on at the DHSS and the one of the uh, fastidious, officious uh, <laughs> workers there <laughs> trying to catch no. him doing work on the slide. So it's basically exactly the same character, but without the glasses. The prob- the, do you know what my problem with this character slash interaction is? I'm on his side. Pay oh, your yeah. bloody council tax. <laughs> yeah well that's it the bins need empty and pay your council tax he goes yeah look we, we it pays for the police <laughs> oh yeah he's not he's not, not happy about that yeah. jim jim london is not on the side of the police no it, the first series has six different writers for the six episodes now spike really? mullins as i said i think he devised this and um he is he's credited as the script editor so i think he was the overarching kind of keeping an eye on things over the series. And in the later series, he writes more episodes. But originally, he wrote the first episode, and then other people write all the others. And and, and that's interesting, because Spike Mullins was uh, like a working-class, cockney, cheeky-chappy boy, and yeah. did all these kind of just knockabout jobs, just scraping a living. And in fact, he only became a writer much later in life, or at least professional writer. Uh, yeah. Much later in life, he was in his late forties when he first oh, wow. like okay. got a proper job, and he wrote gags and sketches for you know everyone, you know all the your classics of, of that era. And uh, <laughs> this is this is interesting, right? Obviously, because he was a bit older when he's working on like the Frost Report and stuff like that, and all these Oxbridge types. So mm. you know he's giving a slightly different perspective, which is great. But also they they wanted to make sure you know we need to have that younger voice so they teamed him up with younger writers just to make sure oh, yeah. that they always worked so who do you think that if you want a young man's perspective who do you think they teamed him up with go on barry crier <laughs> <laughs> well so it gives you some barry idea of how long ago once. that was was he <laughs> <laughs> this from spike mulling's point of view i think he he grew up in this kind of environment he knew what this this life was but also, by the time he was writing this, he was in his late 60s. And perhaps right. we're already dealing with a, a London that doesn't exist anymore. You know, maybe this is Spike Mullins' London of the 1950s rather than Jim Davidson's London of the 1980s. Mm, yeah, that's what I thought, yeah. I, I found that very interesting. But the the writers, uh, the kind of it's a different writer every time. And it's a bunch of jobbing writers, frankly. And like none of them have exactly mm. gone on to be huge uh, names that we're going to recognize this episode was written by louise ford louise ford yeah well first of all a woman, <laughs> a woman. that's good yes it does sound like a but woman, i don't know the name yes well there is a louise ford that's active now who's fairly well known but she's obviously not the same one she's much younger i looked at louise ford as a writer as a sitcom writer in the 80s there is no evidence that this person mm. exists apart from this credit. I, I do not know who they are. I assume wow. they're a woman because the name is Louise, but that is unusual in itself in the 80s. And because Louise Ford is a fairly common name, it's like, I can't Google it. And there is an, a comedy actor, writer called Louise Ford now, who's obviously much younger. So it's just impossible to find any information. 
Right, okay, interesting. The, there's with different writers on all these episodes. It's sort of gloriously inconsistent. There's some really, some really weird things. Like it just doesn't tonally. It feels different every episode. Character. So Anita Dobson is in a couple of episodes of the first series as a kind of love interest, but right. she's in two separate episodes. Same character name. Totally different characterization, just like as if it's two completely separate characters. Oh. Just for example, and there's and there's quite a lot of this in the first series, particularly where there's these characters that are just dropped in, and then they kind of go, yeah. yeah, there's nothing there. And then it's sort of in the second series where they settle a little bit more. That's interesting because I have questions because I I watched six ep- I watched two episodes from each series, mm. and there were characters coming up that I just thought, well, who's this? It, it wasn't yeah. obvious where they fitted in. And I thought, well, fair enough, because I've not watched every episode. I've missed, I've missed, you know, the setup here. But evidently not. No, they do settle down a bit more as we go along. So, uh, for example, we have Sue Nichols as the neighbour, Wanda Pickles. Well, let's let's come back to our episode because this is very timely. So we go from the conversation about not paying his council tax. We we've set up the episode. He's going to get his council tax reassessed. Mm-hmm. His rate reassessed before council tax. Um, and then we go into the house for the next scene. And in walks Wanda Pickles, who is mm. his neighbour. Well, Sue Nichols off of Coronation Street. I mean, that's what she's known for these days, isn't she? But um, we've seen her. Where have we seen her before? She popped up in. Uh, well, I don't know if we've looked at her directly, but she was in The Fall and Rise of Reginald Perry and as a series regular in that. Ah, yes. And when we talked about that during when we talked about Rising Damp, I think. That yeah. And she was in Rent a Ghost. She was a regular in that. That might well, be from your childhood. I've talked about Rent a Ghost before. Uh, you know, very much, uh, very much my timeline. Early 80s kids comedy. Uh, that's that's if you you know you said Sue Nichols off of Coronation Street, and I yeah. accept that is objectively true. But to me, <laughs> she's Sue Nichols off of Rent-A-Ghost. Yeah. So she's been in she's been in Coronation Street since the early eighties. I think she's been a series regular since eighty five, which is when wow. this show finished, I guess. But yeah, in the seventies mm. she was in the Fall and Rise of Reginald Perrin. In the sixties she was in Crossroads. So I think she was one of the original cast members of Crossroads, like when mm, that started. Right, okay. Interesting little trivia I found about her. Uh, found out about her. Her father was a Conservative MP. Oh. And uh, was sent up to the Lords later on as well. So he was a, he was a life peer. Okay. So, uh, you know, fancy background there to go and be in Coronation Street for 40 years. Let me ask you this. And this is in the context of her performance in Up the Elephant Round the Castle. Where is she from? <laughs> yeah. Because that's uh, quite an accent. <laughs> it's certainly, she's certainly not from South London. I'm telling you that much. <laughs> Maybe he's from Manchester. That would make sense for Coronation Street. Right? She sounded like she was doing a Brummie accent badly. Well, that's London, isn't it? Um, people come from all over the place. <laughs> well, I must say, you was looking very good last night. Last night? In my dream. I had this sexy dream about you, Jim. Oh, you look like Michael Caine, you did. He was driving this Maserati, and you were going to whisk me away to Bermuda. So her character, she's a little older than Jim. She's flirty. But then we sort of learn that she's married to a mobster who's in prison and a bit dangerous. Mm, yeah. So Jim finds her a little bit of a threat. The whole character is that she's like a quite an aggressive cougar going after yes. this younger man. And, and there's a lot of that in this. So in, in the show in general, I've seen... we know. You, I look at forums, you see people commenting on it, and it's often people who haven't seen it for years. You know, they go, oh, I remember this. It was like this. It was like this. They remember it as this very smutty, almost carry-on style, you know, confessions yeah. of a well, cockney Well, there's some certainly Benny Hill style lovely ladies about to appear. That's an unusual element, though. And okay. 
it's actually not smutty at all. There's really he, the, you know, he's he's often trying to get. He never even gets to the point where he's like trying to get someone in bed, like Reg Varney. It's like he's trying to get a date with a woman, and like it's going wrong. You know, it's it's he never gets yeah. anywhere near smut. And the only women who are like, and this is classic sitcom, by the way. A woman throwing themselves at a man, and the man's like, "Oh God, yeah. no, thanks, love." Because usually, because yeah. she's you know dowdy and you know Olive from On the Buses, you know, obvious example. Yeah, yeah. Well, we, we'll come back to that too. Yeah, exactly. And there's a later character in this that does it. So two scenes in a row, basically, they're exactly the same thing here, where a woman mm-hmm. is throwing themselves at Jim. Yeah. So we've got Sue like, Nichols oh, no, throwing herself at him, and he's he's basically terrified. <laughs> yeah, fighting her off. And they even have to explain that the the main reason he's terrified is because her husband's like. It could it would be trouble if he tries to go down that road, you know, mm. as opposed to just maybe he doesn't fancy Sue Nichols, who for some reason is as like in the Fall and Rise of Reginald Perry, she's like the sexy secretary that is tempting Reginald Perry. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't get it. Uh, <laughs> maybe that's, that's a matter of Nichols. taste. She's a very attractive woman. Mm, I guess it's subjective. But uh, <laughs> one, one point about this scene, it was Jim's fending her off. He, uh, you know, he uses all his um, all his comedic skills to fend her off. And there's a, a contrived Michael Caine impression. Now, everybody can do a Michael Caine impression, right? Everybody can do a Michael Caine. Wonder if you think I could whiz you away to Bermuda. I can just about afford the cab fare to Birmingham. No, Jim. Two questions. Number one, why can't Jim Davidson do a Michael Caine impression? Number two... With that now established, why have they written that into this script? <laughs> There's quite a few bits in here where... Like, he does voices. You know, some of them are racist. He does good voices. He does not do a good Michael Caine impression. He does it quite a lot, though. So it was obviously part of his repertoire, so they wrote it in. Uh, not a lot of people know that. Uh, <laughs> so... Well, that was as bad. <laughs> uh, we'll see later on. Maybe we'll come to this later, but... He does his zippy off of rainbow impression. Oh, the zippy off of rainbow. One out of every three episodes. That came up so much. (laughs) Jeffrey, what has occurred? (laughs) He does that all the time. He does it in home. But I think that's a a pretty universal impression as well. Like everybody knew in 1983. Zippy off of rainbow. Yeah. Well, that's all we've got time for, I'm afraid, this week. But do come back next time when we will continue our journey around the elephant and up the castle. In the meantime, do join us on social media. We are at BritcomPod on Twitter and Instagram. We're also on Facebook. Just search for British Sitcom History Podcast. That should be enough. We are also on YouTube. Search for the same and you will find us. We have the podcast with video enhancements, clips from the shows, and also other video-related content on there. We have a very healthy back catalogue now of other sitcoms we've looked at, so if you're new here, do please go back and enjoy some of the other things. And if you're Jim Davidson, then I'm sorry, and we will be a bit nicer to you next time, so come back. Thank you for listening. 